All right, today we are joined by Natalie Harris of, it appears to be Baron Harrison Healy. And I hang out with LawTube. And LawTube has a lot of lawyers, a lot of different specialties, or a lot of general lawyers. Um, and I like to always specify that I'm on the side of First Amendment defense. I get a lot of calls saying, hey, will you bring this defamation claim for me? And that is not a sandbox I play on. I am um, uh, religiously pro-media and on the defense side for publishers and broadcasters defending the right to speak. Mm, okay, interesting. So th this is a really a good time and I wanted to pull you on because obviously the big case of the day is the whole Johnny Depp Amber Heard case going on right now. And I don't know if you've looked into it deeply, but I kind of am just wanting to look at it in terms of the actual law because I think that there's two cases that are going on here. You have the court case, which, in my opinion, because I'm not a lawyer, Johnny Depp has brought out because he wants to counterattack statements that he felt were made against him. And he felt the best way to do that, to bring it out, was to sue. But I feel like there's, again, two cases, one that's the legal case and then one that is the court of public opinion. You know, I think you're right about that. Um, and... You know, I, I think the appeal of the case really doesn't have much to do with um, any concept that it's going to create some kind of new legal precedent that going forward we'll be citing, you know, depth versus heard for big First Amendment principles. That's not really what's going on at all. It's actually just the opposite. It's going to be the application of the specific facts relating to their case. Mm -hmm. what she said, what she knew when she said it, and his ability to prove whether or not she knew it was false at the time. That's an old principle going way back. Um, and so it's going to be application of those facts to the actual malice standard um, that goes back to the Times v. Sullivan Supreme Court case. So this is not a case um, about uh, emerging law. It's a case about application of particularly salacious, if you will, facts to well-established law. Okay, now that, that comes into something that's been thrown about a lot, and I just wanted to clarify with you, that Virginia especially, because some of this is state law too, versus um, federal law, um, that Virginia has a defamation per se, and then a defamation. And I have heard from the different lawyers that this could be considered a defamation defamation per se case. Yes. And just to be clear, I think this often gets lost, like even among us uh, media lawyers, is that all of this does come from the Constitution, believe it or not. There is a very clear First Amendment right that, you know, I like to go back and quote it. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And that prohibition is extended to the states by the due process clause of the 14th amendment. So it, we're talking about state law. State law governs defamation state to state, but the um, restrictions on how far um, defamation law can go is governed by constitutional law. It's a little in the weeds, but the idea of defamation per se is this. Um, so it, it falls into what are the elements of defamation? And the biggie is that defamation has got to be a false statement of fact, and we could do a whole session on whether something is a fact or is an opinion. But um, the second or third element, depending on how you look at it, is whether or not 
that false statement of fact is defamatory, in other words, cause harm to someone's reputation. And several states, including uh, Virginia, have sort of a set list of categories of speech that are per se um, almost automatically considered harmful. And the biggies, there are several, but the biggies are an accusation of a crime, an accusation that somebody lacks integrity in their profession or their business, or an accusation that somebody lacks an ability um, in their profession or business. There's some other ones about loathsome diseases and chastity, which thankfully we've sort of moved on from. But in this particular case, it's pretty narrow and pretty clear, right? The speech is an accusation that he, although that's another issue in the case, she hasn't specifically named him, query whether it is actually of and concerning him, but if we take that for granted, which we can't, but if we do, then the question is, is her statement that he abused her um, an accusation of a crime? And the answer is yes. You brought up a good point there, and I also am going to circle back to fact versus opinion. Um, sure. When you said she didn't name him, from what I understand, though, that, again, welcome to Virginia, because it is Virginia, there is defamation by implication. And it's right. not necessarily available everywhere, but it is a way that he could bring it forth. Right. So the, again, that is sort of the contour of state law. And most of this is not statutory. This is how sort of the law of defamation has developed state by state. There's this general concept that um, in order to be defamatory per se against a particular plaintiff, that the speech itself has to be of or concerning that plaintiff. So if you just sort of throw it out there and it could arguably be about a whole group of people, or if you just say something and there's no indicia that it's referring to the plaintiff, that's arguably not defamatory. But in this particular case, Depp's argument is that anyone reading this, even though she didn't name him, it's no secret, and that everybody reading him based on the context of what she said, knew that the only person it could possibly be referring to is him. And therefore, his argument is that it is in fact of and concerning him because anyone who read it knew that it was about him. Okay, now, um, you had mentioned the fact versus opinion, and that does become really important. Now, I'm a YouTuber, so I, this is of very much concern to me. And is it advisable, and I don't know if it's 100% effective, but is it advisable to say, in my opinion, and being clear about it, as long as I'm not stating a fact? Like, if I'm stating a generalization, like, in my opinion, they're sleazy. Right. So you, um, opinion is a very nuanced area, and you sort of raised a couple things. Let's talk first about sleazy. Sleazy is a great example of what we call rhetorical hyperbole. In other words, it doesn't have a distinct meaning. It could mean different things to different people. It's sort of an imprecise hyperbolic statement. Most of the time, that kind of rhetorical hyperbole is going to be considered non-actionable opinion. Um, that being said, just saying, in my opinion, is not going to be a cure-all anywhere. Because mm. if you say, in my opinion, he is a murderer, right, that doesn't necessarily undercut the factual assertion that you're making that he's a murderer. One way to hedge against that is this idea that's referred to as pure opinion, which is constitutionally protected. And what pure opinion means is that you have disclosed a series of non-defamatory facts. And then at the end, you make a summary, you um, publish your opinion 
based on those facts that sort of allows the listener or the viewer to draw their own conclusion. So if you say, you know, fact one, fact two, fact three, based on that, my conclusion is that he's a murderer. That would be protected. And the idea is that it doesn't sound to the uh, listener like you're harboring knowledge of defamatory facts that you're not disclosing. What it does is it puts in the open the total basis for your opinion and allows them to draw their own conclusion. And for that reason, it's generally considered protected. So if you're looking to find a way you know, to protect something that is arguably an opinion, but could be interpreted as fact, the best way to do that is to lay out beforehand the specific facts that you're basing the opinion on and make clear in the statement that that's the basis for your opinion. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to throw an example out there just in case, and I don't know if this is on track or not. Sure. Kyle Rittenhouse. Two people died in the encounter, and he was found not guilty, or he's found um, in self-defense. So he's found not guilty because of self-defense. Is it wrong or defamatory if somebody said, in my opinion, he's a murderer? I don't care. Two people died. I feel he's a murderer. Now, that's just a hypothetical. I'm not saying that. But is that something that would be considered defamatory versus if they said he's a convicted murderer, which is making an actual fact statement? You know, I I think the distinction between he's a convicted murderer and he's a murderer is a distinction without a difference. So I don't think that insulates you much at all. I do think, again, it's, it's a gray area. It depends on the context of the statement. So often in the contextual argument around opinion, there's a lot of factors that you look at. So if the statement that you made was made um, in a you know hard news setting where people expect to see facts um, and not opinion, it isn't sort of a he said, she said, it isn't one lawyer making an argument, another lawyer where the readers understand that what's going on is a debate over what the conclusion is, all those factors tend to weigh in favor of opinion. However, if it is in a hard news setting where people expect to see facts traditionally and there is no hedge and there is no clear debate going on, even if you say, in my opinion, he's a murderer, if you don't disclose the reasons, in other words, if you don't say, here's why I think he's a murderer, Mm. I think he's a murderer because this happened, this happened, and I don't believe that he really acted in self-defense. That's why I think he's a murderer, probably going to be protected opinion. Without that basis about why you think he's a murderer, becomes a little bit more difficult to make the protected opinion argument. Interesting. So it's so nuanced that you're going to be forever employed, is what you're saying. You got it. Uh, (laughs) as, As well it should be, right? Because, you know, the whole purpose of the First Amendment is, to not abridge the freedom of speech. So if you can make an argument that what the person said is not a false statement of fact that damages someone's reputation, they should be allowed to say it. So, you know, my my, my argument is always, you know, unless it is dispositively a false statement of fact that damages someone's reputation is, there should be no liability because as, as soon as you start to restrict what people can say beyond false statement of facts that damage reputation, people need to be concerned because that you start regulating speech on the basis of content, and that's a scary, slippery slope. 
Okay, what about the famous example everybody brings up? You can't set, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Well, yay, I'm glad you mentioned that. Those are the famous fighting words. So again, the Constitution says, uh, shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So the question is, what does it mean to abridge the freedom of speech? And there has been a lot of jurisprudence that um, validates the idea that you can't say absolutely everything, right? And one of the categories of things that you can't say are words that are going to cause a clear and present danger, right? So in order to restrict speech based on the content of what you say, that restriction has to pass what's called strict scrutiny, which basically means there's a compelling government interest in regulating that speech and that the restriction is narrowly tailored. And the examples of things that sort of thread that needle would be just what you're talking about. They're often called fighting words, right? Words that are supposed to inv incite violence. Another one is obscenity. Query whether, you know, in this day and age, that's is still a compelling state interest, although mm -hmm. you know it's going to be a long time coming before you know maybe maybe marijuana gets taken off schedule one first. And uh, the third category is defamatory defamation. In other words, false speech that damages someone's reputation. Those all meet a level of strict scrutiny, you know, within certain confines that allow um, government regulation and restriction. Okay, here's a an interesting one, and I'm getting into YouTuber land here. <laughs> and uh, social media land, but it is, it's a questionable practice. It is against terms of services, but I've heard it's actually not illegal. And I, I think it's a despicable behavior. I'm not endorsing it, but that's doxing. Yes. So we should note that arguably, if you do something that's in violation of the terms of service that you've agreed to, it is illegal. It's a breach of a contract. So okay. just saying that it's not illegal isn't right. Um, that means is is it uh, are you committing a tort, which is a kind of legal wrong other than a breach of contract? Um, arguably, depending on the circumstance, and again, this is state law, you are committing the tort of invasion of privacy, which has several branches, one of which is the um, public disclosure of private facts. So there are, most states have um, a branch of the invasion of privacy tort that prohibits a third party from disclosing publicly um, outrageous private facts about an individual. So the fight in the doxing world becomes how outrageous is it to publish information about someone that's otherwise public? Like if they have a listed telephone number, or if they have a listed address and anyone else could go out and find it, you know, it, is that a violation of their privacy? Because it's not private. The argument on the other side is, yeah, those things are all sort of separately available if someone were to go and do the work, but what you've done by putting them together and publishing them distinctly for the purpose of inciting, um, you know, public attacks on the person crosses the line. Okay. And one example that could be, uh, help me out on this is just another hypothetical. Let's say um, somebody is they have their house and normally we buy our house and it's a, it's a property record. It's, it's public, you know, it is out there, but we deliberately buy it through a corporation to obscure the ownership of where we live. Would that now breach it into another category? Like the I owner is the would, corporation. I think that would increase 
the strength of the argument that a third party who reveals the identity of an individual behind the corporation or the trust that's the owner has in fact crossed a line and disclosed something that is private and not public. In other words, if the individual has taken steps to maintain anonymity and to ensure that that information about them isn't public and a third party circumvents those efforts and discloses it, I think, yes, that that is one step closer to committing the tort of invasion of privacy by publication of private facts, depending okay, on the context, of course. Okay. Well, no, that helps a lot. So I, I want to close out with, uh, well, two things. The main part here, and then I'll, I'll close out with the final question. But sure. everybody's favorite topic about free speech is, yeah, 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 free speech, but we don't believe in hate speech. And I think there's Brandenburg, uh, Brandenburg v. Ohio, which addresses hate speech, doesn't it? Or no? Is that a different situation? Yeah, I mean, it, there are there are restrictions on hate speech, but those restrictions sort of come from what you were talking about before, this clear and present danger standard, the idea that what you're not really regulating um, a message, you're sort of regulating damaging conduct, if that makes sense. So a call to action. So like saying, um, I wish that the Lord would strike somebody down is not exactly a direct thing, but but to direct people to go do over there, bring on, bring your arms and do whatever is necessary to make sure that guy never breathes another breath is yes, I think akin to fire in a crowded movie theater where what's not, you're not saying that you can't say these things. What you're saying is you cannot use language as the tool to incite dangerous action. Okay. And that's kind of where I personally fall under in that is I feel like, I don't know, I like to say free speech absolutist, but in the sense of, you know, whatever is within the law, you know, the, the first amendment itself, obviously a call to action, et cetera, is uh, a crime so that's not speech if it's a crime it's not speech it's two different things well it, it's it's speech but it's speech that isn't being regulated because purely because of the content of the speech that's a big, big distinction in first amendment jurisprudence is are you just regulating the time place and manner that someone could say something that's not an infringement on speech are you regulating the content of what somebody can say if the answer is yes then you've got this compelling state interest. And if the reason you're regulating the content is because the content doesn't stand alone as content, but the content is really a tool or device used to create violence, then it's considered a kind of speech that can be regulated. Okay, so final question. Yeah. From what you understand, and you're not the judge or anything, but do you think Johnny Depp has a solid case against Amber Heard in terms of the law, not what happened, not if there was abuse or any of that. All that is the second trial. That's the public opinion trial. In terms of just pure raw defamation, do you have any thoughts? So I think the key thing um, that gets bandied about, but maybe isn't very well understood here that I think will govern the outcome and certainly governs the legal analysis is this idea that Johnny Depp is a public figure. And public figures, which includes a celebrity and public officials like politicians, elected folks, um, have a much higher burden of proof when it comes to proving defamation. 
And that burden is referred to as actual malice. That's the New York Times versus Sullivan. I mentioned it later. You hear that bandied about a lot now. But the idea behind it is that if you're a public figure, um, you're a celebrity, that you have sort of the tools, right, to push back in the media. You can speak back and you should have a thicker skin. Therefore, in order to prevail on defamation claim, you have to be able to prove by clear and convincing evidence that the speaker knew that the statement was false or harbored serious doubts about its truth and published it anyway. So what he's got to prove to the jury by clear and convincing evidence is that she knew that when she referred to him as an abuser, she knew it was false and she did it anyway. Now, I don't know the evidence in the case well enough to know whether he's been able to establish that, but what I can say is that that's a really, really high burden. And unless there's some evidence out there somewhere where she said to someone or wrote a diary entry, she said, my plan is I'm now going to make up a lie that he abused me and I'm going to use it to ruin his reputation. Or she confided in a friend or a family member and there's a text saying, yeah, well, I realized he didn't actually abuse me, but it was close enough. Unless there's evidence like that, that's, you know, really a silver bullet that demonstrates she knew it was false or did it anyway. Um, I think he shouldn't win. He can't meet his burden. Okay, well, you said it here, and I may have you back to discuss whatever the outcome is, because obviously there's a jury who could throw oh, it yes. all into the air, because yes. that's the, the third trial. has trouble understanding the instructions sometimes, or sometimes the instructions aren't given clearly. Sometimes they are given clearly, but, um, you know, the decision doesn't necessarily adhere to the instructions. All right, well, thank you so much, Natalie, and to all of you. What do you think? Please comment below. I I consider everybody watching who's not a lawyer to be the jury member. And if you are watching the case, do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think he's proven it based on what we've talked about here? Please comment. And Natalie, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.